0: We are here with our 100th episode of Fast Forward, where we have tried over the course of the show to answer the challenges that keep entrepreneurs awake at night. But what about our civic leaders? What keeps them awake? And what does the future of technology look like in the Northwest? We wanted to bring a very special guest onto the show to help us celebrate our milestone but also the milestones of Manchester as it continues its rejuvenation as a world-class digital city and showcase what it offers the global stage. So welcome today, Leader of the Manchester City Council, Sir Richard Lees. Hello,
1: it's a real pleasure to uh, be here and to share some time with you. Looking forward to it.
0: We're really interested in, in your views on the city and how it's changed um, over the years, Sir Richard. But, um, and most people will know you as the leader of the council, which you have been since 1996. But like me, you're, you're not an original uh, Mancunian. Um, you were brought up um, in Nottinghamshire. And I wondered if you could maybe start off to tell the listeners a little bit about yourself um, and your background. And if we look back on your childhood, what was that? What was that like?
1: I well, I think it was uh, a fairly conventional uh, childhood uh, uh, really it's uh, uh, family came uh, came from on one side worked in a castings factory the grandparent the other worked at Kirby Summit uh, colliery uh, traditional industries in in that part of the world at the uh, at the time uh, I think first home which I can't remember because I was a baby uh, <laughs> my parents and my brother were we were living with uh, my mother's parents which was a a pit house in Kirkby, and then we got a a council house, which we lived in for a a while. So uh, local primary school, um, uh, we then moved from Kirkby and Ashfield to Mansfield, and uh, uh, again, fairly conventional. Uh, I was uh, past 11 plus and went to a grammar school because certainly for Mansfield, these were uh, Mm pre-comprehensive days, and from there, uh, went on to uh, University uh, University of Warwick, which is really the time when, although uh, my family, my mother in particular, was still in that uh, uh, area, was when I left the area. I suppose some things which were more common now than they were then is uh, parents separated when I was about 15, divorced, so uh, mm-hmm. for a period of time, single-parent family with a far younger uh, younger sister. So that that was uh, certainly not seen as conventional uh, no. back in the 60s when that, when, when that happened. But otherwise, yeah, uh, a fairly uh, uh, standard growing up.
0: So university um, took you down the path of teaching and um, you taught in Coventry and then you did a stint in, in America for a bit.
1: I did a degree in uh, uh, pure maths and then... Uh, uh, I I went into teaching in a Sydney Stringer School and Community College, which was quite an innovative teaching environment in in Coventry, right in the centre of the uh, city there, which was uh, really quite exciting at the time. But then I had the opportunity to uh, uh, spend a year as an exchange teacher in the the United States states uh, in Duluth Minnesota uh, one of the coldest parts of the United States <laughs> so that was a an experience in itself certainly in winter one of the coldest parts of the United States I think it's about 55 miles from the coldest spot in the contiguous United States i excluding <laughs> Hawaii and uh, Alaska uh, but yeah. uh, this was uh, actually uh, mid mid 70s but so it was Again, something that will be relatively unusual nowadays. It's the first time I've been on an aeroplane. So uh, that was... Uh, um, uh, been on rather a lot uh, uh, since then. But a very teaching environment. Also, of course, having to uh, uh, include for maths, learn uh, uh, a new environment. So, you know, if you're doing algebra, Z's became uh, uh, Z's. Uh, if you yeah. use the... Uh, something we would often say "naught" for zero, nothing, meant nothing to uh, uh, the the children in my classes in the the United States. So uh, a really, really interesting experience. And I I still have contact with people I work with uh, there indeed. Uh, Every month, uh, the staff of the school, former staff of the school I worked in, uh, get together for breakfast. And every month I still get an invite and... Uh, Around about four years ago, I I surprised them by turning up for breakfast in uh, Duluth, Minnesota.
0: (laughs) That sounds like a a really lovely surprise for everybody. But um, you didn't stay in America. Obviously, we know that you came back to and you decided to come to Manchester Um, and you took up a post as a youth worker.
1: That, that, that's right. As I was teaching at a really kind of innovative school in, uh, in Coventry and it gave you the opportunity uh, to do things other than just, uh, I say just teaching and teaching was uh, uh, an enormous challenge in itself. But uh, mm-hmm. I got involved there in doing some youth work, uh, running play schemes in summer holidays and, and so on. And I think with my then partner decided two things. First of all, we wanted to move further north. And uh, secondly, I really wanted to, uh, uh, if I could, uh, do more in that youth and community uh, sphere. So I, I got a job in North Manchester at the Abraham Moss Centre. Actually, Abraham Moss Centre, in many respects then, uh, was very similar to the school in Coventry I came from, in that it was a, a joined up school college with lots of uh, uh, community facilities and moved there to uh, run the uh, youth club. And um, because of where it was, uh, uh, moved to Crumpsall. Uh, Abraham Moss is mm-hmm. on the Crumpsall Cheatham border and yeah. have been in Crumpsall ever since. But uh, I fell in love with Manchester. It was a very different place then. And it was really the vibrancy of Cheatham and Crumpsall that uh, uh, I found really, really uh, uh, exciting about being in, in the city and i think manchester is a place um certainly in my experience that uh, uh, you you don't remain as a, a, an outsider for th- 30 years if you move to manchester mm. uh, if you adopt the city if you adopt the values of the city this is a place you can become a manc overnight
0: yeah no i totally agree i would consider myself a mancunian at heart now and you are you're you're welcomed in um you know if you do embrace the city and the values that it that it has um, so it feels like your life had sort of been sort of gradually moving towards sort of this, these more civic minded, um, uh, values in, in your life. And that moved you into the political arena in 1984. Um, tell us a little bit about that journey and then what Manchester, for people who don't know what it was like then, what was it like and what were some of the challenges that the city had at the time?
1: Uh, well, um. It was a series of uh, accidents, almost, uh, if you like. And uh, ever since I started work, I've been actively involved in the trade union movement. So uh, uh, I'd been a, a, a school rep uh, in Coventry. I was a, a union branch secretary in uh, Manchester. And I first got involved, really, in party politics as a result of uh, the Thatcher or, or reaction to the Thatcher government in Uh, 1979 and uh, the cuts that were introduced by that uh, government. That's what led me into the uh, Labour Party. And uh, what led me into, first of all, considering standing for election uh, was that uh, I'd taken uh, time off from work after the birth of my uh, first child, really to uh, be the uh, main child carer. Uh, So uh, that meant that I did have sometime, and that's what really led me into deciding I would consider standing for the council. But the first year I stood, um, I didn't expect to be selected as a candidate, never mind uh, uh, <laughs> elected, but both happened and yeah. I became a councillor. But the city then in in 84, and compare it to now, uh, most of the traditional industries of the city, uh, which were large-scale manufacturing Uh, were destroyed. What was left of them, anyway, was destroyed in that period in the uh, early 80s. In East Manchester, I think uh, something like 70,000 out of uh, Mm 110,000 industrial jobs went in just a couple of years. So Mm -hmm. uh, we had large-scale unemployment. A lot of the skilled people within the city uh, moved to go elsewhere. Uh, we still see a lot of the vacant sites in East Manchester where factories uh, used to be. And the city centre was a place, um, well, it was uh, really uh, Monday to Friday, 9 to 5, shopping on, on Saturday. And apart from that, it was pretty much closed. So there was no night, nightlife, very few restaurants, very few places you would go in the uh, evening very very different and uh, uh, far more well actually quite depressing in many respects in in the city centers and uh, not not somewhere where people would come to because there was not unless you worked here there was not a lot of reason to come
0: um, fr- 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 frankly so... if
1: if you uh, anybody if if you were to take anybody back who moved to manchester now to that period in the mid-1980s uh, with nothing in between, they probably wouldn't mm. recognise that they were in the same place.
0: I was going to say it sounds so unrecognisable to the vibrancy of the city, which is twenty four seven, so something always going on, which is what I really love about the place. Um, but the council really led the the reversal of that, um, and you were you were part of the team that was at the forefront of it. How did you go about that? Because that and now there's quite a lot of momentum. And I feel like we're coming to a perfect storm where Manchester's really taken its owning its place in the global stage. And we're going to come to that in a minute. Um, but back then, it must have been so difficult to start that reversal process and to start this new pathway. What were some of the things that you did to kind of start changing people's mindsets, I suppose, more than anything else?
1: Uh, I, I think the first thing we did was really uh, have a proper analysis of the problems we faced and uh, I came to the conclusion probably late 80s, uh, th- the biggest problem we faced was uh, deprivation, uh, the biggest cause of deprivation, not the sole cause, but the biggest cause was either unemployment or low-skill, uh, low-wage employment, that we recognised that if we're going to tackle the causes of that rather than just the symptoms, what we needed was jobs. Uh as has happened over the last few years, local local councils then have been uh, cut to the bone and we recognised mm-hmm. that uh, if we were going to bring jobs to the city, that meant uh, bringing private sector jobs in, that meant working very constructively with the private sector. And uh, I think it was, first of all, making those decisions to establish uh, different relationships with the private sector, those of working in partnership, that started the process uh, off. And we also had... I think uh, some l- real learning opportunities, and um, and probably two. I I'll say one is first of all the uh, the rebuilding of much of Hume for the second time. Although uh, on the second time we've done uh, a lot better at it, which allowed us to I think learn a lot about the principles of good planning, good de- uh, design to move from uh, zoned areas to more mixed use uh, a- areas. And the principles we learned there are really what we've been applying across the city. Of course, we still continue to learn uh, ever since. I think the, uh, the other uh, bit of learning was really uh, applying those principles to the city centre in particular and starting to develop in the early 90s uh, what we describe as the, the 24-hour uh, uh, city. Uh, the 24-hour city was not just, though, about nighttime economy. 24-hour city was principally about bringing people to live in the heart of the city. Um, At that point, 1990, there were about 500 people lived in the city centre. And you've got uh, the Smithfield estate in what we now call the Northern Quarter. It wasn't called that then. Uh, We had the uh, St. John's estate down in uh, uh, Castlefield. I don't think we call it Castlefield then either. That that, that was a name <laughs> that came in uh, around that sort of uh, uh, that sort of time. Then we had you know a few uh, pub landlords, caretakers, so on, and that and, and that was it. But so that was I think truly transformatory was uh, and turning the city centre back into a place where people lived. I think it's also something that we learned at that period of time. If you want to bring about these sorts of changes, you do not do it overnight. Uh, you have to think long term. Um, because of the funding regimes we were working within, uh, for Hume, uh, the regeneration of Hume, we had were working theoretically within a a, ten, a five-year time frame. But in reality, we knew it was going to be 10 years uh, plus and um, we're now what thirty years on, and um, we haven't quite finished yet. Uh, but, however, it has stood the test of time.
0: It's continuous improvement. Uh, you know, the, I think those transformations never uh, really end. Um, and I suppose- that's right.
1: It is. I, 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 I think some time ago, start start to think of the city as an organism. So it's not about uh, physical things. They're very much about uh, people. But if you think about uh, the city as an organism, uh, it's either uh, growing or decaying. But at any particular point, you will have both growth and decay. What you need is to make sure that the uh, growth of the organism is always at a faster and healthy rate than the decay.
0: And those must have been challenging principles to have, because, you know, what you've just said there about long term investment and long term projects. The political sphere doesn't work like that. It works on elections and four year windows. And that must have been incredibly difficult to balance at the time. Um, And particularly moving into the period then when you took over the leadership from 1996. How how is that? That must be very... A nuanced uh, path to follow to be able to achieve those long-term goals and vision but also within the political arena that you're you're dealing in? Uh,
1: I I think it is difficult it's probably slightly more difficult in the city because because we uh, have uh, elections uh, every year well three years out of every four we have local elections so we are almost in uh, permanent election mode from uh, that point of view but it's partly having that debate. What are you in politics for? Are, are you in politics to make yeah. a difference or just keep winning? If, if just keep winning elections and don't do anything, uh, what, what's the point? And uh, I think there was a real consensus, certainly uh, amongst the Labour politicians in the city, that we wanted to bring Uh, about real change and uh, I think we've been fortunate in the city that we both had political stability uh, by by and large but also Mm -hmm. within that political stability uh, the dynamism of wanting to do things to make a difference rather than simply maintain the status quo.
0: Um, And then you have external factors that also bring challenges there Sir Richard and I just wanted to touch very briefly on the sort of the significant um, uh, event that happened in Manchester in 1996 at the beginning of your leadership. Um, you know, we obviously have had our the, the recent Manchester bomb, but it was predated by a previous bomb set by the IRA. How challenging uh, was that period for you and the team? And how did you go about restoring the confidence in Manchester when that would have made everybody feel so vulnerable?
1: Uh, It certainly was, well, it's a challenge and it was a shock. and it's a a shock for tens uh, tens of thousands of people. I'd been leader for four weeks when uh, 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 that happened. So it was literally a baptism of of fire. But in, in many respects, the city was already in a fairly good place to be able to respond to that disaster because of the, Work we'd done previously in building partnerships uh, within the the city. so we didn't have to create those partnerships from scratch. Uh, They were already in place, both public and uh, private sector. But uh, some of the things we did by uh, instinct, and uh, probably only quite a lot later that I found out that if you were to look at the theory of disaster recovery or theories of disaster recovery, that we'd done uh, the right things and as happens in pretty much every uh, disaster. Very early on, we made the bold statements that we were going to uh, uh, rebuild the city even better than before. Now, there is a simple economic uh, equation there. If you're going to build better, then you need more capital. What happens mm-hmm. in uh, any disaster is that there is an immediate loss of capital. So what uh, you have to do is to, first of all, uh, stop uh the f- loss of capital as quickly as you can and then obviously uh, build up n- new resources for the rebuilding um, and i probably one of the most important things we did was to ensure that we got every business that, that we possibly could that were been stopped from functioning because of the bomb back up and operating as quickly as possible and I think that was reflected in the uh, the, the charitable fund we established then, the uh, Lord Mayor's Emergency Fund. Quite often in uh, disasters of that sort, uh, funds are there to uh, to to aid or or to compensate for loss. Uh, we did it rather differently there. That. Uh, We used that fund to be able to support those businesses that were viable businesses to get back up and uh, running as quickly as possible. And I think that the fact that we did that was uh, quite fundamental to uh, the city's future success. I think the second thing, uh, I suppose, goes alongside that is that we did the planning of the the rebuild of the city centre, first of all remarkably quickly, um, it was a plan that was always geared. Is, is this realistic? Is it uh, uh, deliverable? But also a plan that allowed us to really compensate for some of the planning errors that are being made in the sixties and seventies, and and particularly uh, the the uh, lack of movement north south in a whole swathe of the of, of the city centre. That that uh, g- going from the bomb to an international design competition to the plan to supplementary planning guidance took us less than a a year. So if you put those two things together, uh, getting the city up and running really, really quickly in a a matter of months, but also having a a funded plan for the city within a really short period of time, that was a lot lot of what gave uh, our residents and our businesses confidence. Probably, I have to add, because it it was remarkable, is that uh, it was a real demonstration of Mancunian spirit. And after the arena bomb, we saw that uh, uh, Mancunian spirit, that cohesion uh, in enormous quantities. Well, we saw that in 1996 uh, as well. Uh, People were just willing to go with the flow (laughs) of whatever we needed to do to get the city operating again. I
0: had just moved here. Um when the Manchester Arena bomb had happened, and um I've definitely witnessed this, that Mancunian spirit um in in droves um it was really interesting time for me because, as you can hear from my accent um I'm from Northern Ireland, and I grew up during the troubles, and every day we would have had um you know different atrocities happening one side doing it to the other and when the arena bomb happened it didn't it didn't affect me um, or I didn't feel that it affected me when it happened over that sort of 12, 24 hour period. But what really affected me was the um, show of support and everybody coming together at the uh, at the town hall. Um, because that was, bombs happened day and daily uh, back home. That show of support and that uni- unity was something that never happened. And that was what I found um, overwhelming at that particular particular time and I've never seen it anywhere uh, else before to that extent it really is a, a testament to the city if you're enjoying the podcast simply hit the like and subscribe button on your favorite podcast platform if you have the time leave us a review you can do that really easily by going to ratemypodcast.com forward slash uh, fast forward
1: I don't think it's happened in that way uh, anywhere else and that particular event uh, and it went viral around the world because mm-hmm. uh, it's not the experience that the places have. And uh, clearly the circumstances in Northern Ireland were very, very different because the, the, it was communities divided amongst, mm-hmm. them, uh, amongst themselves. And when you've got that yeah. division, it, by definition, you haven't got um, any uh, community cohesion. But uh, that event and the days following that, pretty much um, every part of uh, – uh, our very diverse manchester society uh, came out to deliver the, uh, uh, the we are together message uh, to deliver that cohesion me- message and that the uh, whatever that those the bombers and we noticed, you know, it's bombers were were not part of our community they were outside that community and it was phenomenally powerful uh, yeah, phenomenally strong but yes uh, I don't think any of us have witnessed anything of that strength uh, before but I think it does say something about the spirit that has been created in the city over the, the past couple of decades
0: Yeah and if we look at Manchester now it is thriving it is a world apart from from the place that we've just reflected on from the past. Um, you must have some uh, personal highlights uh, and key successes that you look back on um from from over your career. Can you share some of those with us? Uh,
1: yeah, although I'm going to put a, a, a caveat on this a little bit, <laughs> is that uh, if, if we'd been in January of this year, I think Manchester was uh, one of the fastest growing cities in Europe, never mind in the, mm-hmm. uh, uh, in, in the UK, and was really on a positive tra- trajectory. We might get a bit more into this uh, uh, later, but uh, clearly COVID-19, the pandemic, as for every other uh, part of the country, has really put us into uh, uh, very difficult circumstances. But it's mm-hmm. the spirit, I think, we've talked about uh, earlier, that will help us recover from that. But if I take that journey, um, yeah, the, uh, what are the? Uh, I think I think significant f- uh, factors, and there are lots and lots uh, uh, of them. In fact, if, if I'm generally asked what the most important uh, uh, achievements has been over that period of time. Uh, I won't say it's any particular event or any particular development. It is that the it's a city that back in the nineteen eighties had lost its uh, self confidence. has got its self confidence back. It now believes it can do things. It's mm-hmm. uh, and that cities that believe they can do things do things. But uh, the regeneration of Hume as said, was absolutely uh, fundamental. It, it was. Uh, particularly in the early days, really exciting. We were doing new and innovative things. We're learning uh, all the time. And that really was where Manchester learned how to do uh, re- regeneration. I don't think I underestimate the importance of, uh, of that. Uh, clearly, the period after the bomb, the two or three years uh, after that, the rebuilding of the, uh, of the city centre, uh, very challenging. But uh, something that clearly, uh, well, just look at the city centre now that, uh, yeah. rough think that a lot of that would have uh, perhaps happened anyway in different ways, but it might not have happened as, quite as quickly and uh, perhaps not in the ways that we have been able to rebuild uh, the, the city centre. Uh, a, a clear landmark was the uh, 2002 uh, Commonwealth Games. And um, the Commonwealth Games, apart from Being phenomenally successful, apart from uh, putting Manchester, certainly for a period of time, on on the international map, there's also a period when people from across Greater Manchester, uh, it's really strengthened their identity with Manchester being uh, their city rather than uh, uh, somewhere... Perhaps something a, a little bit alien, actually. So uh, there was a real ownership of Manchester from across Greater Manchester around that I- I- event, and that, I, th- I think that was an important stage. And of course, the Commonwealth Games gave us an infrastructure that we're still using uh, uh, t- uh, today. So we've just had, the, I think, the UK Athletics Championships in the arena but that was built for the the practice arena for the Commonwealth mm-hmm. uh, uh, Games, and yeah. Manchester City Football Club using the uh, the Etihad. Uh, stadium. Although uh, I'm, I'm a City fan, but they've been rather more <laughs> successful than perhaps I might have anticipated at uh, at, uh, at that at that time. Uh, the again, aquatic centre, you know, the Velodrones become the uh, became the yeah. gold medal factory. So, uh, an infrastructure there, and um, part of the Commonwealth Games was the cultural uh, program, and the cultural program lives on. Uh, in Manchester International Festival, uh, one of the most innovative and successful international festivals anywhere in the world, and will soon physically uh, live on in the the factory, the new arts centre being built down by the banks of the Irwell. So, Commonwealth Games were uh, was a, a really important uh, moment. Uh, I think uh, some of the again a, a lot of the work we've done around the regeneration of. Uh, of East Manchester, being able to start increasing the population of an area that had been declined for years uh, is important. But in that decade, um, the, the noughties, uh, I'm, I'm going to pick build, building schools for the future, uh, where we basically, an £800 million programme, uh, either rebuilt all our high schools or brought them up to uh, brand-new uh, uh, con- condition. And I can't help but feel the fact that education in the city, our standards have improved year on year uh, over the last decade or more, is, is partly, no, it's not solely down to that, but it's partly down to the uh, investment we were able to, with the support of the then government to be able to put in uh, into our uh, schools. Um, clearly, the, the last few years have been tough, not least because uh, we've had uh, year on year cuts, but... Again, I, I will pick the fact that even in the most difficult circumstances, we've been able to keep the uh, city growing, to increase the number of jobs in the city, to increase the number of people who work with it, uh, with, with the city. So uh, I, I think an intangible in some respects, but those are the things that make a difference.
0: Um, they really do, and um, it's no surprise when you describe it in that way that, you know uh, publications like The Economist, and honestly, probably monthly, I'll read a report that says that Manchester's the best city to to live and work in in the UK. Um, but as you say, it's still developing. We're always learning.
1: Uh, a good example of how the city ch- has changed is if you look at the uh, at the old part of uh, Ancoats, uh, in between mm-hmm. the canal and Oldham Road. Where yep. even six years ago there was virtually nobody there. there was nothing there It was a lot of empty uh, empty buildings it 's now regularly described as one of the uh, top ten neighborhoods in the world never mind in the uh, never mind in the country i th- I think uh, it 's a bit special when you can bring it uh, about working with others everything 's done with teams. Uh, yeah. it, it, and that's, I think, teamwork has been fundamental to how we develop the city. But to have those sorts of changes really uh, does occasionally make you think that you're doing something worthwhile. <laughs>
0: yeah. And, you know, it's one of the interesting, I guess, side effects of Covid were you know, obviously the council have closed down a lot of side streets to facilitate outdoor seating areas for hospitality venues to reopen. But the piazzas that that's now created down in Ancoats and this new kind of um, vibe that's happening down there. I'm a Miles Platting resident, you see, so I walk down the canal there often to to check out um, what's going on. So um, it's definitely a a very up and coming um, area. Um, I think one
1: of the things we've done around, again, around regeneration, is also to try and recognise difference between uh, neighbourhoods. So the fact that uh, uh, the gay and lesbian village is very different to the northern quarter, which mm-hmm. I think we invented the northern quarter in the mid '90s, which was uh, a <laughs> probably uh, a good thing to have done. It's but it's very different to Castlefield. It's very different to mm-hmm. the retail centre, and we're very clear that. Uh, with the uh, regeneration of uh, Ancoats, that this was not just an extension to the city centre. This was a, a distinctive neighbourhood that needed to have its own uh, characteristics. And I think we've pretty much been able to do that. Some of that's quite simple, of course, is that uh, uh, we've, we've been very clear that uh, uh, for Ancoats, this is not going to be a late night place. It's uh, yes, we want it to have that life that you've got around Cotton Room Square, but it's uh, uh, uh we want it to be a mixed use neighborhood so we want places that, mm-hmm. where people work there as well but it's also very much a residential neighborhood and the and the way the neighborhood operates has to reflect that
0: and i think that's some the trend that will continue as an impact of covid you know people want to work and live um in their neighborhoods to, you know, to reduce their need to travel, to reduce their the, you know, to improve their work-life balances and and um all of those types of things. Um now you mentioned um at this uh, earlier that at the beginning of the year Manchester was one of the fastest growing cities in Europe um and it continues to um create records and I don't know whether you had seen the recent O2 report that highlighted the number of startup businesses that launched during lockdown. Um, there were yeah. over two hundred yes,
1: thousand. In yeah, the entrepreneur uh, capital of the uh, UK, yes. I think. Yep, 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 the R&D. That, yes. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We are indeed.
0: Yeah, and do you feel that Manchester now is truly at the heart of the digital revolution?
1: Tech has been for the last few years the biggest growth sector in. Uh, Uh, our economy took over uh, service industries from service industries a couple of years ago although they continue to grow uh, as well but uh, if uh, if I was to go to uh, probably certainly any city in the developed world and they were to list uh, their top five growth areas they'd all they'd all have digital in there Mm -hmm. all of them Mm -hmm. Um, so what's distinctive about uh, Manchester in, in that particular field is that we dug a little bit deeper and looked at, well, okay, digital, it covers a, a wide range of stuff. What is it that we're really, really uh, good at? What do we have research experience in in the universities? Um, so it, it is things like uh, cyber, it is things like big data, uh, it is digital marketing. We, um, I'm not going to go through an exhaustive list, but we identified, I think, a number of areas where we were not only good, but we were world-leading. And I think, uh, to a certain extent, we've been able to build our digital base over recognising those things that we are really, really uh, good at. I think it's also probably, although uh, they're often uh, uh, lumped together as creative and digital, I think that Mm. uh, clearly the creative sector has large digital elements within it, and I think there is also that element of recognising uh, digital as an industrial sector, as against digital in other industries uh, as, as as well. But I think the fact that we did have a uh, very very strong creative industries uh, sector, and we've uh, invested in creative industries in the city, uh, I think there is it's certainly there there is a almost symbiotic relationship there that has helped digital uh, digital to grow. I suppose perhaps. Uh, Linking a few things uh, or strands together from what I've been talking about, I can remember uh, uh, three or four years ago, it's a, a digital entrepreneur within the city, probably built up to quite a, a medium-sized company, but still not not enormous, but basically saying uh, without the uh, northern quarter, you'd have no business. What it really meant is that if we didn't have that, that place where uh, all these uh, – Uh, skilled, creative people wanted to be, wanted to live, then you won't be able to build a business in in Manchester. So I I guess it's recognising what we're really strong at, uh, building a a place to live infrastructure that makes the city attractive uh, for the the skilled workforce and the workforce of the future, but also having that element of uh, creativity, of uh, innovation as part of the DNA of the city.
0: And do you think that's the reason that we've seen... Um, some of the big brands now come into the city. Um, I've, I heard you speak recently at the opening of the Amazon AWS offices, beautiful offices down near Victoria, um, uh, you know, where they've restored and added to um, some of the uh, old infrastructure of the, of the city. Um, do you think that's the reason that they are now coming here? It's almost like what I was talking about earlier, that perfect storm is starting to happen where we're, we're magnetising these new sort of big brands here.
1: I think that is uh, very much the case and uh, there are quite a number of companies that are not digital uh, companies uh, or, or actually I suppose increasingly all companies are digital some <laughs> yes. respect yeah. to, uh, uh, not digital companies, but they've uh, moved their digital their development teams uh, yeah. into uh, Manchester and yes, they want to uh, trade on the creativity and skills we've got in the city.
0: Um and the and the economy has been growing. Um, but obviously, uh, like everywhere, it Manchester has been heavily impacted by COVID. Um, and I've seen recently um the the research that the council has started on the Our Manchester strategy, the reset, um, the road to twenty twenty five. Um, which is a very um, I think it probably reflects how you, how you guys have been doing things is that you respond quickly um, to crisis, um, you know, and how you talked about the bomb. Like we're we're not even six months into uh, into what we know now is this COVID or new normal, um, but you're already looking at the you know the ten year plan. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that research? What kind of motivated you guys to look at that so quickly, and and what you hope it to to show you?
1: Yeah, well, I think I'll. Talk about two things within that uh, that context, and, and, and first of all, uh, we recognise very quickly, and because I, I think we initiated the work on the uh, update of the our Manchester strategy, formally back in uh, May of this May of this year, so uh, we did act uh, quickly. Our existing ten-year strategy was five years old, so we probably do a re- refresh anyway, but clearly. That was a ten-year strategy built, uh, written in a very different uh, context to the one we're in uh, now, and mm-hmm. that said it needed to be updated. Um, I can go right back to the nineteen uh, nineties, and one of the things we learned there is, that as a city, we do have uh, need to have a vision, clear vision. We do need to have a strategy, but we also need that to be a strategy for the city, one that people not have just bought into but that people, business, citizens, community groups, everybody has been part of uh, developing. And again, we recognise that the recovery from uh, COVID-19 had to have that engagement of the city in that strategy for how we were going to go forward over the next few years. So uh, this is very much using lessons learnt to develop uh, an inclusive approach to the future strategy, future direction the city and although we're still not quite finished the consultation phase around that uh, we thought when we set the Our Manchester strategy back in 2015 that we had a phenomenal level of participation then so far even with the difficulties of having to do everything uh, digitally remotely uh, the participation level has been even higher than it was uh, uh, then so we really are getting people uh, engaged but at the same time as Uh, That all-encompassing our Manchester strategy, Uh, we've also been refreshing our economic strategy because clearly the economy is something that underpins jobs or something that underpins everything that we need to do. And that uh, economic recovery strategy uh, will be completed with actually within the next seven days. But again, it's been... uh, a process that we've involved other people in, and want to particularly uh, play credit to uh, the Business Sounding Board that we established to support us in that process, uh, who've been meeting every fortnight a range of businesses local businesses, national businesses, and international businesses, small businesses, uh, big businesses, uh, a whole range of sectors. And uh, they have been actively working with us in engaging and consulting with other businesses about what they think we need for the economic recovery. And I guess it is, I think, that participative process that gives me confidence that we will have strategies that emerge that are realistic, that are are rooted in the real conditions we face and will allow us very quickly to get back to that growth trajectory.
0: Um, I uh, participated in the initial research for the Planning for economic recovery report, and I've seen the I've seen the outcome, uh, the the report that came off the back of that, and, and it was a, an incredible piece of work, um, also frightening in some ways. Um, some of the industries in the city centre have been really hard, uh, really badly hit. Um, arts and entertainments, uh, which I know is one that's very close to your heart. Um, you know, almost half of the Manchester residents that were on furlough were from those industries. Um, what concerns do you have for the arts um, and for that live, work and play concept that, that you guys put in place um, all those years ago?
1: I, arts and culture will uh, will come back. Um, uh, I guess my, my concern is what damage is done uh, in, including to the individuals involved uh, in the time it will take for it to come back in a way we might consider uh normal being able to go to uh, uh music events being able to go mm-hmm. to uh, theater events and, and so on that will come back it's ha- how long it it, it takes and um, one of the things we've been doing is working very hard uh with the our uh, culture rego- recovery group which is led by uh, uh, Dave Moutry, who's, uh who's as well as being chief executive of Home, is uh, for a day a week our cultural director, <laughs> uh, as well. Uh, you know, and Dave's been doing a great job in bringing the sector to uh, together to develop our planning ar- around that, engaging with Arts Council in England and, and others. Um, so it, it will come back. Um, it, probably, it is the fact that our cultural sector. Uh, is able to come together probably in in that, again, that cohesive way, which I don't mm-hmm. think happens anywhere else, uh, really, that, that, that does give me confidence uh, in its recovery. But it, it is absolutely uh, crucial. I can go, go through a whole list of reasons why uh, culture is important, including, of course, all the people who are employed in the uh, cultural sector. But if we're looking at COVID-19 recovery, the most thing, or important thing about the cultural sector, it is what makes effectively, life worth living. It's, ma- it's what makes Manchester uh, the place where, where people uh, want want to be. And it, it is absolutely vital that we bring the vibrancy that a strong cultural sector brings, that we bring that creativity uh, back to the city as quickly as possible.
0: Uh, and we've seen a great example of that, actually, in the last week or two, haven't we? The, um, the return to the city campaign uh, with one-minute briefs and Bruntwood... Um, which has really brought together the creative and digital in- industries to crowdsource the marketing campaign to encourage people back to the office. Um, I think the hashtag for that is Better Together MCR. How? I mean, I guess we already know from what you've said, but the importance of those collective public private campaigns um, in terms of how that helps support what the the council's trying to do from uh, f- you know from from the public sector. How important are they?
1: Oh, it's uh, vitally important. And that particular campaign, I, th- I think it's brilliant. It's uh, a business to business campaign and it's business uh, uh, led. Uh, but uh, business led from a whole range, again, from a whole uh, range of uh, businesses across a whole range of uh, sectors. And I think it's going to be. Uh, far more effective as a result of it being business led yes the uh, the city supports that. we are uh, clearly working in, in partnership, but uh, we're not in the lead there there and uh, one of the strengths of the city is that uh, the civic authorities quite often pr- provide a, a base and a framework, but it 's a base and framework for other people to get on and do uh, do things. We give people the freedom uh, to to get on and uh, deliver. I, I, I suppose an example of that uh, is the Manchester International Festival its, itself. It was created by uh, the City Council. I think we took the decision probably around about 2003, but it took a, a few years to get the first festival up and up and running. Uh, but uh, having created the festival, it operates completely uh, freely from the city. We're still the uh, single biggest funder uh, of it. And it has complete artistic freedom as well. We give, uh, give. we've created a platform, but then uh, we let it get on and do its job. And um, I think that's reflected in what we're doing around economic recovery now. We're using uh, that history, the knowledge we've gained to make sure we keep operating uh, in that way. So if, if we look at arts and culture, it will be the sector that will lead the uh, recovery with our, our support. Uh, similarly, I... Uh, it, it, something you talked about earlier about what we've been doing about space within the city, and clearly, uh, cafe society, restaurants, bars have been an important part of making uh, the city a, a, a positive place uh, to live. Um, yeah, we've worked really hard to very quickly create new spaces where those businesses continue can continue to operate but it's still down to the businesses to use uh, those spaces. And it's been phenomenal to see over, over the summer, uh, the vibrancy that's been uh, reintroduced back into much of the uh, city, the life it's created. And again, that's part of how we rebuild the city.
0: Um, and I think that's um, something that I've really been interested in and wanted to talk to you about was the, you know, The legacy of Cottonopolis, as Manchester is also formerly known as, and the regional hubs and the redundant mills and factories, and Coates is obviously a great example of that. um, Because we are going into this new normal where people want to live and work in the same areas. Um, What are is that? Will that be the continued sort of? You talked about kind of having the roadmap now for regeneration. Um, will that be Manchester's view in terms of periphery sites like Newton Heath, like Miles Platting? Are we next on the list for regeneration um, to create, continue to create those kind of neighbourhood hubs um, where people can kind of have that sense of community? Is that the, we will and, continue on that way for in our in our new normal life?
1: Well, probably forever uh, <laughs> is, uh, is is the answer to uh, to that. But I, we need to distinguish between I think uh, different neighbourhoods and. Um, I said that the uh, the part of Ancoats where the old mills are, up until a few years ago, there was uh, no, basically nobody living there. Uh, mm-hmm. There were there were some uh, residential, but not a lot. Uh, so effectively, th- there was no historic community uh, left in that uh, uh, area, or, or very little of the historic community left in that area. Similarly, with the city centre. Uh, it's pretty much starting from scratch. In places like Myles Pattingham and Newton Heath, we are, we are not doing that. Uh, there are large, long-standing communities in those areas. And it's really important, as I think we have been doing in uh, East Manchester over the, perhaps the last 20 years, uh, that we work with and build on existing uh, uh, communities rather than uh, effectively so, uh, as occasionally we're accused of seeking to to, uh, displace them it's something we learned in very much in Hume where Hume that although uh, the community was declining because it was not a place uh, people particularly wanted to live we built on the existing uh, community and that's what we have to do in those uh, uh, other neighborhoods but uh, I think for Places like uh, Newton Heath, Miles Platting. Miles Platting is a bit easy because of its proximity to uh, the city centre. We still d- need to look at not just how jobs are created there, and if you look at Newton Heath, things like the Sharp Project have created mm-hmm. uh, jobs wow. there, uh, but also how people in Newton Heath are able to uh, access the economic growth, the jobs that will continue to be developed in the in the city centre. And if we're going to do that in a sustainable way, uh, that does mean having uh, basic clean, green uh, mass transit that people can uh, use. And that principally means, although Newton Heath's on the obviously you've got uh, Metrolink services, it principally, principally means having an effective integrated public transport network based on the bus
0: and let's just talk about that. And and just before we do, SHARP Project was one of the examples I was going to suggest was like what you described. You were talking about the civic frame framework, which is private-led. And the SHARP Project is another great success story of the council getting involved with the private sector, but then letting go of the reins and allowing that to, to go on as a, a private initiative. Um, but well, building that better.
1: Not, not, not entirely true, is that uh, oh. both the SHARP Project and the... Uh, uh, and space yes. studios yeah. uh, are basically they, they sit within uh, they are we've we made them slightly not a department of the council. Now we have set up a company framework for to operate sharp and uh, space space studios, but they are still yeah. both wholly owned by the uh, city council.
0: Oh, but they, apologies. But they are good,
1: so I'd say they're quite good examples of uh, uh, civic enterprise, actually. <laughs>
0: um but yeah so uh, brilliant examples and space uh, space studios is an, is another great one um but you mentioned something there about climate and um the zero com- carbon um campaign that has launched um just as we're coming out of lockdown building back better has to go hand in hand with um climate e- economy you know manchester had already declared a climate emergency before um, and But we were also still one of the very first cities to establish science-based carbon reduction targets for ourselves. Um, so tell us about the city's new campaign and how we're going to be thinking climate first as we build back better.
1: Yeah, well, first of all, I, I think in the city we've decided we're not building back better. I know everybody else in the world is building back better, but it's backwards looking. So we're building for the future, uh, and I think that's uh, important that we, we, as a city, we always look forward. We never look, uh, uh, never look backwards. Um, and a, a gr- if we don't have a green future, uh, well, for uh, for people, there'll be no future whatsoever. So this is mm. an absolute imperative uh, that we make our full contribution to tackling uh, climate change. Uh, There will be some places, because of the economic impacts of COVID-19, will be tempted to dumb down for a period of uh, time to reduce standards. But again, back in May, we made it quite clear that uh, in terms of uh, zero carbon but other standards, uh, we see that as absolutely crucial to building uh, our recovery, uh, crucial to building the future of the the city. Um, That has got to go in everything. It's got to be... Uh, uh, part of everything, transport is one of the big generators of uh, uh, carbon emissions. So we do need a clean and efficient transport uh, system. Uh, Buildings are the biggest sources of emissions. And a lot of that is the buildings we've already built. So we have to find ways of uh, retrofitting, of uh, making our existing building stock into a green building stock. We do need people to... Uh, look at their own behaviours and uh, not to take a sort of hair shirt approach, but uh, uh, to you know, <laughs> actually walk that one kilometre instead of driving yeah. that uh, one, one kilometre. Some relatively simple things that uh, people can do. And we also need some exemplars. And I think we're going to have some great chances for exemplars uh, in the near future. So uh, the planning framework that we're consulting on for what used to be Central Retail Park. We're looking to that to be uh, our first zero-carbon uh, and traffic-free, apart from uh, deliveries, uh, commercial uh, part, business part. Uh, we're looking for back of ancoats again, of zero-carbon, reduced traffic as being a central part of that. Uh, hopefully, in the not-too-distant future, we'll be looking at further out of the city, up in North Manchester, in the area I live, at the North Manchester General Hospital site, and building uh, a new general hospital, a new psychiatric hospital, uh, residential development community facilities there, but again on a zero-carbon footprint. <coughs> all all of that will allow us to uh, really develop the tools that we need to build a, a, a zero-carbon future. Because uh, if, if I talk to... People in, the, for example, the construction industry, they would say at the moment they really don't know how to do it, but they know they've got to find ways of doing it. And I think by putting demands of the sort we are going to put on for Central Retail Park will really fuel the innovation that's required to build that to, uh, zero carbon Manchester.
0: Lovely. Uh, well, we're nearly, we're nearly done. Um, there just sounds like there's so much exciting stuff on the horizon. Um, that we've all got to look uh, forward to. Uh, I don't know whether there is. Um, I think probably the best way to wrap up the podcast is maybe just to hear from you a little bit about, you know, your personal vision for Manchester uh, and what what would you like to see achieved in your uh, in your tenure as leader. What's still to do, Sir Richard? <laughs>
1: Well uh, so I've, I've been leader for a lot longer than I expected to be to, uh, to be honest, but uh, uh, it's one of the things I realized uh, uh, years ago uh, really is that uh, uh, I'm in a job where it will never be finished. so I, I have to think about uh, you know what comes next, who, uh, what I'm ha- handing over uh, really. and I think the important thing to be uh, hand, handing over. Or having taken off me, whichever way it goes, it's uh, electoral <laughs> politics. You never <laughs> know, do you? For
0: absolutely no <laughs> doubt, <laughs> for you. Uh, uh,
1: but uh, is is really that uh, it, it is a city that is going in the right direction? And how do you define uh, the right direction? Well, uh, up until the light, late 1990s, our population had been in decades of decline. Uh, We still need to be growing our population. We're not back to where I think we really need to be. Uh, We need to be becoming a healthier city. We still have some of the worst health statistics in the country. We need to uh, become a healthier city. We still need to be a better educated uh, city. But over the past decade or so, uh, the number of people with uh, high qualification level is now above the national average. But we still have too many people with no or low qualifications, so there's a job to be done uh, there. We still have too many people living in poor or inadequate housing, uh, some people, of course, in no housing uh, whatsoever, so there's a job uh, to be uh, done there. So I, I can go on. That uh, I can talk about uh, all the things that we've done successfully, how much better uh, the, the city is compared to what it was 25 years ago, compared to what it was when I moved to the city 41 years ago. Uh, But really, uh, I I think it is uh, something I spend more time looking at is how much more there is still to be done. And it's making sure that for uh, whoever succeeds me, succeeding generations, that we leave a really strong foundation for them to be able to continue on the journey.
0: And I can't imagine that they could have found any better foundations than what you have, uh, along with your colleagues at the council, have built over the last um, 20 to 30 years. Um, Oh, I
1: hope hope that's, (laughs) uh, I guess i I look forward to, uh, uh, if if whatever comes uh, next is one of their starting points will be saying that a lot of things aren't good enough. Uh, that's <laughs> what, uh, that's what I that's what I want. I, I don't want uh, everybody. Oh, this is good. No, I think yeah. I, I, I want succession that says this, this is good, not good enough. We can do better.
0: We can do better if yeah. Um, I've really enjoyed talking to you this afternoon and hearing your personal backstory which I didn't really know very much about Um, and also really excited um, about all of the inspirational initiatives that are happening around us now and are to happen in the future Um, for the listeners um, who may be sitting and having some concerns about what the future looks like. Hopefully Sir Richard's insight into what the future of Manchester has to offer will give you a better night's sleep. Thank you. Thanks very much. Fast Forward is a weekly interview podcast brought to you by Tech Manchester, an incubator for digital and creative startups in the Northwest. I'm your host, Patricia Keating. The podcast is produced by Sarah Belgi, audio editing by Jamie Gowenlock, and music by Parma Violets. If you have any questions, feel free to drop us a line at infotechmanchester.co.uk or follow us on any of our social channels. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn, all under Tech Manchester.